This is Aaron. This is Michael. And you're listening to The Nathans and Roncast. How you doing, Michael? Doing pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about our intro, and I, I feel like we've been inspired by Rusty and Jan with their uh, really? podcast. Do, yeah. do, do they do that? They do a similar type of thing together, which is cool. Well, if, if we can take after uh, such a dynamic duo, then we are lucky indeed indeed yeah so so we're, we've got a song that we're going to talk about in this episode I, I don't know many artists who have done a podcast per song no episode uh it's like i don't know i'd like to say it's revolutionary uh, it is in our own little M- way much like the topic of this next song yeah uh this is a song called let's play in the snow and it's really complicated it's a song about playing in the playing snow, in the snow. Yeah, it's when Aaron brought it to me, I said, no, <laughs> who would do that? Actually, I, when I was 25, mm-hmm. living, I'm 39, 39 in July, 38 right now. That would make you 38. Yeah, well, don't, you know, don't, sometimes don't rush I me. like to age myself a little bit. But, the, but basically, when I was 25, living in Collegeville, PA, near Route 113, and I don't know, I was 23 or something like that. Either way. We were, it uh, doesn't matter where I lived. Either way, it snowed, and I learned that snow can go down and make a snowball. I didn't believe it. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, in the w- desert. Was there any, ever any snow? I mean, I saw some snow in kindergarten in 1990. It snowed enough to make a snowman, but I don't remember rolling a snowball. Mm-hmm. I thought we packed the snow, and it could have been that we did, but I think we, so it was snowball rolling snow, and I walked outside of the basement thing that I rented, and this 25-year-old Michael Ronstadt was, like, rolling snowballs and building a snowman. And I was just as happy as could be. You know, I was playing in the snow. I was by myself, probably a little lonely, going, wish I had someone to hang out with. But the snow made it all better. And I just love it. So, so this song just makes me s- smile because there's a snowball fight, I think. There's laughter. Uh, it's uh, it, to me is like all the accolades of a family having a beautiful moment that you might see on like old time camera footage and say, oh man, those were, that was the day when, you know, we could, you know, I don't know. It, there's something about that that nostalgia. So I, I gave myself nostalgia that I never had at 25, and this <laughs> song gave me nostalgia to that. You know, I started writing this as a bit of a joke song. Um, kind of an ode to um, having, I mean, I, I, I wrote this uh, just after playing in the snow with my daughter, Lily. She was, I guess, 14 at the time. Um, but we, we went outside. I think this was basically the last time we had a, a major snowstorm and just that cozy feeling of, okay, you know, the roads aren't plowed yet. There's no place to go. There's nothing to do but to go outside, play in the snow, and then come back in and have hot chocolate. Um, and Lily loves the snow. And I have great memories of growing up uh, out east in, in New Jersey and in uh, Ohio of, uh, you know, sledding and, and making snowmen. And it was, uh, you know, it was just a moment that I got to share with Lily. And, and then I came in. And because, you know, I, you were talking about, you know, 
your your age. I'm getting up there. I'm, I'm going to celebrate. He's uh, turning 28. I'm turning 28 in uh, <laughs> in August, and um, you know, there's little aches and pains that you feel when you're uh, a parent at a certain age and uh, trying to act like you're younger and so just playing in the snow as a middle-aged person i think this song kind of reflects on on being being a parent and and feeling that awe despite being in a little bit of pain (laughs) and at least there's a soft landing kind of yes i always say that (laughs) like when it's raining out or you're like rolling around in the grass oh yeah that's yeah Let's play in the rain. That's a different song. (laughs) There's a little lyric video, music video that we did. So we're we're like having... We're working on it. We're working on it. That's what it is. Actually, for the last one, Without the Cold, we were pretending there was snow. Yeah, there's a number of of winter songs on this album. It's good. You know, and there's certain sounds that we put into the song, if I may talk about a few spots. Please. where we used instruments or sounds that I think evoke winter. Uh, I always think of placid lakes, just or or just space, a lack of noises. Snow pads the sounds around you. It's kind of like fog, it makes it sound extra silent because all those things get stuck and don't get to you. Right? There's there's a calm about it. So just like the last song's "Winter Without the Cold." Let's play in the snow. When you're out there and playing, like sometimes you just, you're bundled up enough. You don't really care that it's cold or your shoes are getting wet. You're just having a good time. You're going to, you're going to go warm up later, you know, but, um, I believe it's track, it's track four on the album. Yeah. Track four on the album. And I did some steel string guitar. Um, uh, cause we, I think I added a second guitar. That's what it was. Um, you played the Rhodes on this, didn't you? I played you? the Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to find. So the Rhodes keyboard is there. And we even did that on Without the Cold, in fact. Mm. So the Rhodes keyboard, I played on two things that's about the winter. But what's characteristic about the sound? Let, let's just listen to the spots where you hear the Rhodes. And so, so what you may have heard is that it's a very bell-like sound. It's, it's a percussion instrument. The keyboard is literally making a sound that's percussive, hitting like a, a metal bar or something. Right? I, I don't know the, the insides of a Rhodes keyboard, but it's a, it's a classic sound. Either way, you hit it, and it just has this ding. Mm-hmm. There's no vibrato. It's just very calming. I love it. It adds that thing without being overwhelming. You can play Rhodes with overwhelming tendencies, but even then it's very subdued. There's other instruments that do that, but Rhodes keyboard, in this case, the studio had it. We utilized it. I don't play keyboard, but I can play a few notes. And uh, that kind of evokes the winter in my mind. I hope it does to your ears. Yeah, I remember the Rhodes from from some vintage Billy Joel tracks uh, from the 70s. Uh, it's got a... Got a very seventies feel, but that's not what we were trying to evoke here. So anyway, that I mean, that's just I think we tried to evoke some winter, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful moment in that song captured from yeah. your family, and makes me happy because it makes me think of when I was twenty five. And if you think about your own situation because of someone else's story, it's it's a good song. 
And a discussion about this song would not be complete without a nod to Doug Hamilton, who played... Uh, That's right. I played uh, uh, strings. Doug and I added a string quartet section. Two cellos, two violins. I've been working with Duck... With Duck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't work with Ducks. I go, wah, wah, wah. You know, I do have this little wooden duck thing. I think you're there. thinking of a character from Mad Men, but go ahead. <laughs> so uh, I've been working with Doug Hamilton... Bicycle connoisseur, builder, spoke builder. He he's the best violinist I know, and I know a lot of them. Uh, he is a BMW car mechanic, just by self being self taught and maintains his cars beautifully. Wins car shows with his early nineteen eighties BMW. That just. St- you know, for car people, it's stunning, right? You know, for me, I don't know much about cars. I just think it's a cool car. But basically, he can do anything. And we've been playing music together in the studio for a lot of years. And for the over the decade that I've worked with him, 14 years, 15 years, he basically, it's like we we read each other's minds. And so when I brought him in to add violin parts, he knew exactly what I did without ever hearing it. He did one pass, a second pass, and we had a quartet. No overdubs. Everything was perfect. So shout out to Doug Hamilton. If you're hearing this, you you rock. As I like to say to Aaron, like anyone who just rocks the world of whatever they do, you rock. So. Yeah. Doug, Doug's a, a, a really sweet guy and yeah. very generous, very kind, and a really talented uh, strings player. Yeah, we'll play a little snippet of that that section. I think that string section is magical. So here you go. Well, without further ado, uh, here is our interview with our esteemed guest this week. Well, we're so excited today to have our guest, Doug Hamilton, who isn't what the song is about, but he played violin on Let's Play in the Snow. So, Doug, thank you for being here. Uh, My pleasure, guys. Hello. Aaron? Good to see you again. It's good to be seen. (laughs) Yeah. And and, uh, in this digital world, we're... We're looking at each other in three different locations. Um, Doug, it was so much fun to have you join us uh, in this little Michael Doug quartet setting. It's one of the things that you and I specialize in and have been doing so since 2008. But uh, you, you probably remember how we met. It was with a show with Lisa Bialis and her band. That's right. And I'm some random cello guy who came in to sit in at the show at the Oxford Community Arts Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious what your, I, I feel like instantly we had a rapport. Absolutely. Um, it's one of those things, uh, uh, you know, people talk about true love and, well, how do you know? And, uh, you know, it's like somebody walks in the room and you have a connection and we have that musical connection that it's really hard to explain. 
um, we've been in a lot of different musical uh, environments together. And I don't recall one where we weren't able to create without really any discussion whatsoever between us, something that uh, served the song, because that's what it's about really when it comes down to it. It's about serving the vision of, of the songwriter and uh, making the lyrics, uh, not, not, not making it about us, it's about the song. But one of the things that um, I love about it is that we had this little string section breakdown. So I did a little cello melody, a little bass line, and it didn't need a lot. It just needed that push and pull, kind of like that, that whole ebb and flow that you see with um, life, storms, wind, anything. Part of what we do is we, we can kind of follow things that aren't with a click track. And let's play in the snow is not done with a click track. So when someone says, hey, do you know a violinist? I say, well, let's call Doug because he'll play the exact thing that it needs and serving that song. Aaron, what were your impressions when we first had those parts sent to you and you heard them the first time? Oh boy. Well, I, I just, uh, I loved uh, hearing it and uh, hearing the song come to life. I always pictured a, a string quartet there. And I knew that when, when we, we roped Doug in that he would, would, would pull it off. You know, Doug also did the, uh, the, the part for, uh, for Hello World. He's like, the, the first thing you hear on the album is Doug. Hmm. Hey, no cello there. Just, just some Doug Hamilton at the top. <laughs> right. So, you know, your, your, your playing has always kind of reminded me of that whimsy that you hear on, uh, used to hear on a Prairie Home Companion. Well, oftentimes, Aaron, when I hear you sing, I, I, I have sort of a movie that plays in my mind because your, your singing is, is you sing about things. You, you know, you're, it, it's very thematic and there's a subject and it's not sort of a, uh, what would we say, some sort of um, stream of consciousness thing. You know, these are deliberate songs. They're, they're composed. So oftentimes a, a reel of film starts grinding out in my mind of, of uh, the scene you're describing. And all I'm trying to do is, is it's sort of like musical seasoning, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, maybe some oregano over here or something that seasons it and, and, and hopefully complements it, but doesn't make itself center stage and doesn't try to take over the tune. You know, it's like good seasoning. You shouldn't notice it unless it's absent. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, there's a good interplay there uh, on the recording, even though we weren't in the same room together. I think uh, you, you, the one time that we did act, I think we've only played together live once. That's right, at the Community um, Arts Center. Yeah, uh, but that was a really fun evening. You barely, maybe you knew the songs. That, that I think you'd reviewed them, but you didn't like spend weeks reviewing them, and, and you jumped right in there, and it, it just the whole show was that was. It's got to be among my top 10 favorite shows wow. that I've ever played. That's um, awesome. And, and well, we, we did the, uh, the Watchtower at the end, and, and that, was, uh, that was kind of epic. You know, Michael and I often joke that sometimes the best performances are the ones when the first rehearsal and the first performance run concurrently. <laughs> and sometimes you get really lucky with that, and it's very, very special when that happens. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how do you... Uh just jump in and, 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 and 
playwright, you know, with, with, without a, a ton of rehearsal. Uh, you know, my fiance asked me that question, and I really had to think about it. And to me, it's not any different than sitting down with three people and having a conversation. I mean, you don't have to think about what you're going to say. You are just respond to the chatter um, that's going on. And it might be an interjection and like, uh-huh, or, a, or maybe you'll say a whole sentence or maybe a whole paragraph. But you don't think about it. You, it just it becomes um, just a, a form of communicating. So it's not, uh, you know, nobody rehearses bar conversation. I, I can see that. I mean, your, your fiddle's very expressive. Mm, thank you. What, what kind of instrument do you play? Well, if it's going to be just acoustic, I have two violins that were made for me by a man for whom I apprenticed in Atlanta, probably almost 40 years ago now. He's, uh, his name's Robert Kimball, and uh, he's kind of a savant in that he only makes violins because, as he puts it, that's the only that's all I hear, and I make the sound I hear in my head. I don't make violas, I don't make cellos, because I don't hear viol- uh, violas and cellos. I hear violins. And he'll describe in depth what he's going to make and then put it in your hands six weeks later, and he's made the sound he's described for you, which is amazing, but it also means he can't tell you how he does it. So he doesn't have any students. I mean, I learned how to set up violence with him and I got good at that. But when it comes to actually, you know, he's holding up a piece of spruce and going, okay, you hear that? You know, I'm going to take a little bit of that of this. I'm going to bring in this and I'm going to, it's a little bright. I'm going to change that. I mean, I don't know how he does that. So, you know, those are the two main acoustic instruments. Now, uh, because of a friend Michael introduced me to almost a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, we did a, a jazz show, big band with string quartet, essentially, but no brass. We were the brass section. Right. And, yeah. and we pretty much, I mean, there was kind of a rehearsal, but we sort of just <laughs> went for it. Um, it was a little chaotic until we got on stage, which was, it's kind of good. You know, when you, when you're a little scared, sometimes the best things happen. So that's true. And so I got a five string violin out of that deal. And, um, I find surprisingly, it actually records really, really well, which has been a bonus. Yeah. And you know, um, Doug, did you use the five string or the four string I, for this recording? I think it was before you got yeah, it was before string. I got it. Yeah. Uh, because there was a lot of times with a, I feel like with your high end brightness of a fiddle in the room, sometimes a quieter instrument has all those things that uh, eliminates what you're rolling off on the high end for any audio geeks out there. If if the fiddle is a little more quiet and just records exactly what you need, then you, you take some of the work out of the equation. I'm glad you said that, Michael, because you just hit on something that has been something that a lot of amplified acoustic players don't seem to get. And also when they want to stick a pickup on an instrument, um, you know, acoustic stringed instruments, violin, viola, cello, bass, evolved over hundreds of years to be heard at a distance. Very rarely was a crowd less than 10 feet from you. And so these instruments had to project because there was no other way to get the sound to the back of the hall. So the way you get that is by creating depth and focus. Um, Now, the problem is if you stick a mic right over a violin like that, you get a lot of stuff that you don't want um, that that the air in a concert hall will naturally attenuate. But when you've got a violin like the five string that's essentially built from the ground up as an, as an amplified instrument, the maker's not trying to push it to the back of the wall. He's trying to just get it out of the F holes. And so there's a lot of that 
those those high partials that 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 make it sound brilliant at the back of the hall that simply aren't there, uh, which I think lends it to recording particularly well, especially with a close mic. There's condenser microphones and there's ribbon microphones. There's other kinds, but um, the ribbon mics have kind of a sweet sound that create that back of the hall sound. So they always say with string players record with a ribbon. So a lot of what I record tends to be a condenser microphone and a ribbon microphone combined because they get the sweetness of the ribbon and that brightness of the dynamic. You know, it's all it's all a game. You know, you're trying to figure out how to recreate what happens in the stage, you know, on the stage, in the hall, in the living room when you're playing for your friends. How do you recreate that in the studio? And uh, part of what Aaron and I work to create with these albums is we, we record the basics with no vocals and we might have a click track behind us um, uh, if it wants it. But most of the time we're trying to just have a great performance that still has groove. I would call it the bobbing your head factor. You know, if someone's just sitting in the audience going, yeah, man, or they're like slapping their knee the whole time, you know, depends on, you know, whether it's a barn burner or just a slow ballad. But, you know, when you've got all that going on, how do you create that on the album? And how do you make it so your audience doesn't say, well, I really like their live performances more than their albums. And although it's a compliment, you want to be able to have two great products, essentially, you know, one that has the energy in both worlds. So, um, which is so difficult, which is, you know, Aaron is able to pull that off vocally. And then the rest of us just try to, you know, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aaron, Aaron will ask me in the studio. I was like, was that too much? I'm like, well, you really can't do too much. You know, like, uh, sometimes we can maybe work too hard to make something happen, but you know, it, it's, I feel like this happens in recordings. They, uh, recording engineers soften your P's and T's, but when you listen to musical theater recordings, the P's and T's are, they, they pop, you know, they're all there and it's for the expression, right? So where do we find that balance so that you're not popping people's speakers, but you're not turning your P's into B's and your T's into D's, you know, like that's, that's where I, you know, for me, how can we find that crossroads where, where we're real? So, Michael, what are we selling this week? Well, it, you know, it kind of relates to us in that it's about a, uh, it's about a song that we never put out called Beat the Traffic. Mm. And we always do this thing every month. Uh, it'll be a multi-tiered thing. There's February Album Writing Month. Mm -hmm. And a lot of musicians, creators, amateur, professional, whatever, we're all there every month and we might the goal is to write 14 songs in 28 days uh, if it's leap year 14 and a half songs in 29 days i was like oh, i'll write a fiddle tune so i wrote this fiddle tune called race the traffic mm -hmm. and i sell that in pdf form at shakenearthmedia.com so if you go to shakenearthmedia.com shaken earth earth media where are the media.com <laughs> yeah i didn't have anything for media uh you can go buy the pdf for like two bucks and you can get i i believe treble clef and bass clef versions of it but race of traffic fits all the contra dance needs you need so if you're a banjo player fiddle player cello player guitar player go to the festers you want to add something 
This is perfect. 16 bars, 16 bars. Race the traffic. So if you want to beat the traffic with your cool new fiddle tune that no one's ever heard, get Race the Traffic and uh, add it to your repertoire because shakenearthmedia.com has what you need. We also have a bunch of other stuff that, that I've put out there, um, instrumental music. And uh, FOM. February album writing. Month. Yeah, it's a great great thing and if you want to be creative do something if you just want to be a lyricist or just do instrumentals it's the place for you there's a lot of people it's a social community based thing it's great so anyway you know find your community over at fom.org mm -hmm. and uh, get some sheet music at shakenearthmedia.com back to your regular programming with part two Doug, you have had a variety of things in your career, which includes music, of course, which I think is probably the biggest part of the pie, if I had to guess. But you also own a bike shop called BikeWise in Oxford, Ohio. And so you are a genius bike mechanic. Um, all evidence points to that. And then you also um, are an aficionado of BMWs. And you have... Oh. Only old ones, and <laughs> you fix them up yourself. Um, you maintain them yourself, and you win car shows with these things. And then on top of that, but only old um, ones. <laughs> uh, on a number of any subject, right. any other subjects like photography, you do uh, some photography work. Uh, you, you've got your, your creativity. Basically, you're kind of the Renaissance person that that I think many of us uh, could see more of in this world. But uh, I'm thankful that. That if there are few and far between uh, finding a Renaissance person, uh, you might fit that that characteristic. Um, so I'm curious, um, when you were younger and growing up, like what did you think you were going to do? And then as you started to discover various pathways and uh, things you could do in life, uh, how did it divert in ways that surprised you? Huh, that's an interesting question. Is it possible to blush on a podcast? That was the nicest thing anybody's ever said. Thank you, Michael. Um, I st okay, so I started on trombone in the band because my friend Jeff Cranfield played the trumpet and I wanted to hang out with Jeff. So I joined the band and they put me on trombone mm. and I guess I was miserable at it because the uh, band director sat down with my parents and said, look, he just really doesn't have any talent musically. And so probably should sit this one out. And so I said, well, whatever. Well, a year later, the very apparently, uh, you know, attractive to me, um, orchestra director, this bohemian uh, of a woman came up and said, would you like to learn how to play the violin? And I remember looking up at her and shaking my head and going, uh-huh. So, you know, I hate to admit, but that's kind of where it all started. And I just took to it. Um, uh, a year later, she's saying, okay, you need a private teacher. And then, of course, he took one look at me and said, oh, we're going to turn you into this classical violinist and you're going to be a concertmaster and you're going to go do this and that. Um, 
which worked for a while, but I really found that confining because I had all these other things I wanted to play. And, um, you know, if you, I had kind of remembered reading about Bach and how in those days you were expected to be able to improvise. You know, Bach might write down the chord progression, but you had to get from one to four to five to two minor to wherever with, with an improvisation. But suddenly in the classical world, that was verboten. You know, improv, improvising was like, oh, you missed the notes. Um, uh, people show up at concerts with scores. Um, it's It just really seemed to me poor. that there are other people much more suited to that kind of thing. And... Um, <laughs> Went through four music schools trying to bang now my head. Now that I know, I can't wall. hire you ever again, Doug. And, uh, yeah, four. Never, still don't have a degree. Sorry. Most people that go to school for seven years are called doctor. Thank you very much. Finally, uh, ran across this guy named John Coggy, And I'm actually playing with him tonight here in Oxford, which is kind of funny that we should be talking about this. Um, he had a little folk band called The Lonesome Strangers. And they did everything from dead covers to some originals to John Prine, um, just all kinds of really juicy, straight down the middle, uh, folky, rocky kind of stuff. And he said, hey, you want to come sit in sometime? Because at that point, I'd given up playing classically and was so bitter and about the whole thing. So, you know, he's trying to be nice and I bring my stuff and I set up. And by the end of the first set, he says, you want to join the band? It just, it was like, it came so naturally. It just felt like everything just fell into place. And I really never looked back, started playing jazz, started playing everything but classical, ended up in Nashville touring for eight or nine years and uh, moved back up here and um, uh, kind of at the behest of my wife at the time who didn't want to live in Nashville and raise kids there. Uh, I bought myself a job at the bike shop and then met a guy named Michael Ronstadt and, uh, you know, want to play a lot more music. I don't get to play as much as I'd like to. The, um, uh, t- tell me a little bit more about those eight or nine years you spent touring. Uh, who was it with? Well, um, I was fortunate enough to be in a jazz group that we opened for Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones. And at the end of our set, Vic came over and said, hey, man, you ever think about moving to Nashville? And um, I said, well, you know, actually, I kind of toyed with it. Um, so he gave me his number and a month or two went by and I, I called him and he said, well, I'm going to be in town in a couple of weeks. Why don't we, why don't you come down and I'll kind of show you around town. So um, uh, after meeting some folks, uh, I, I went and met a guy named Fred Carpenter who ran the violin shop. And didn't know it, but, you know, here's Mr. Violin Contact Central in Nashville. And he basically, within minutes of being in there, and here's Victor Wooten. So he's thinking, well, Vic's behind this guy. He can't be so bad. Um, handed me a fiddle and said, hey, I just set this up. Play something for me. Well, there's your audition. Um, but, of course, I don't know all this is going on and kind of behind my 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 head, so to speak. But um, decided to move. And, you know, of course, he's like, if you ever move to town, let me know. So I guess a month or two went by and I said, well, the heck with it. Let's just, let's just go. No gig, no job, no nothing. Let's just go. Um, Vic's girlfriend at the time was moving out of a house and uh, she's like, Hey, I've got, here's a place to live. You can move right in. I'm moving out. So I moved, moved in there and um, 
Uh, a week later, had an audition with a guy named Aaron Tippin, um, who had a bunch of number ones at the time. This is 93, I believe. And uh, was out on the road with him 120 days a year. Um, played with Trisha Yearwood for a little bit. Um, went, went out with Tanya Tucker. Uh, Barbara Mandrell, the last two years of her career, a uh, uh, young guy named David Kirsch, who had a few number ones, and then Reba McIntyre. And uh, at the end of that tour, my daughter was scheduled to be born, and I didn't want to be the guy that was gone all the time. And my wife had the job with benefits, so I did the stay-at-home thing. Loved it. Wow. And one of the things, Doug, you've told me is that uh, you kind of learned – what you don't like about doing the same part every night versus that conversational aspect. And that was, I thought, I, I think really cool that, you know, it also, if I say, Hey, Doug, do that same part every night. I know that you're going to be like, I don't really feel like it, you know, which is, but you know, humans don't work that way. You know, uh, machines do. And I feel like some of these tours probably felt like you were just to turn yourself on, turn the off button switch it to off go go relaxed same thing every night was it like that or was it fun? well somebody explained it really well to me and i think this makes perfect sense um great shows that you're presenting to the public as a show are built on the avoidance of risk think about that everything has to be the same so you don't want to do anything that would court risk throwing anybody off being not exactly like it's supposed to be great music on the other hand is built on the embracing of risk. I mean, you, uh, we start, we had a, that set together in community arts center where, where you looked to, I, I said, what are we going to play? And you just simply started improvising and we just, just jumped on together. We didn't know where that was going. We embraced the risk and we got a great tune out of it. Um, you know, we just the other night at that uh, wine club thing we did, I think that was probably the best minor swing you and I have ever played. And nobody knew about it. <laughs> we're the only two people. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, we, we had this, we were playing for this wine club, Noisy, and we did a version of Django Reinhardt's minor swing that I think would have beat any version. But I don't think right. anyone really noticed except us. But we were just happy as, you know, and I would, I would bet money on that version too. Like, usually that doesn't happen in my life, but... Th- we went some places with that tune, so it was a, it yeah. was good. <laughs> Doug, knowing you as I do, I mean, I, I I can imagine that that being forced to play the same thing every night would be quite aggravating uh, to your musical sensibility. But I mean, did you have to kind of suck it up and do that when you were out on the road with these big names? And did, I mean, did that diminish some of the enjoyment, or or was there were there still things to? Uh, I, I imagine that being on a stage that big. You know, hearing the the roar of the crowd, you can't help but take energy from that. Sure, um, that's kind of the that's the name of the game is is being consistent every night. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a certain kind of energy that has to just go into the focus because you've still got to you've got to present the music in a you know it's it's not ACDC we're playing with here. It's you know there's a there's a certain amount of control. You've got to be very focused to play non-fretted instruments in tune um so you can't get too excited you've got to focus in on what you're doing and Mm. serve the song and serve the stage and hope it all turns out um the um i did notice it took took the edge off my ability to improvise 
um, until I, you know, you sort of get in this rut and then suddenly you, you go sit in someplace and, and you feel like, um, like, where did it all go? Um, now to the credit of one of the guys I worked with named David Kirsch, we were playing, we still, I think that band still has the record of the most shows in one year of the William Morris agency. We did, four, I think about 437 shows in one year. Wow. Multiple shows a day. Yeah. Sometimes two and three. And, you know, here's the band. You talk about burnt. I mean, these guys were just over it. So I was, I'd been nominated the band leader at this point. So I said, all right, guys, let's do something a little different. If there's a signature leg, play the signature leg. Like if it's a thing that identifies the song, play that. But if there's a fill, fill it. If there's a solo, play a solo. Like start, just, just play. Um, Give the crowd a little something that they can't get listening to the record. And what was fascinating was how the creature of habit, I mean, I mean, it was a very capable band who could play and could improvise, but you've done it so many nights exactly the same way that it actually took a little bit of, you know, and it, it took some time to really start to fall into it where, uh, it started to get more comfortable and crowds noticed it. They, they thought, Oh, this is a little bit different. This is fun. You know, David's going to run across the stage and climb halfway up the scaffolding. Let's extend the solo or let's trade fours. Let's toss it around. And of course the production manager, when he first heard of this idea was kind of like, well, how are you going to know what to play if you don't play what's on the record? And I said, believe it or not, that's kind of, that's kind of what we're supposed to do. You have to trust us. And um, it was a little bit of pulling teeth for a while. And it's very not Nashville to do that. Um, you might know a fiddle player um, named uh, Stuart Duncan, who's played on. I mean, oh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's amazing. One of the finest yeah. ever to walk the earth, as far as I'm concerned, for playing that genre. Um I was talking to him one night. I, th- I can't remember where I saw him. It might have been Station End. And he was talking about, he played on all, all those Lyle Lovett records. Really? Yeah. So that's Stuart. So he's the guy that did, uh, well, some of my favorite songs. Right. I mean, the guy's a genius improvising. So Lyle decided he wanted to take a band out that was essentially the studio band. And hey, this these are the guys who cut the tracks. And so Stuart shows up for the sound sound uh, sound check and there wasn't really a rehearsal or anything because these guys played on the record what do you need a rehearsal for so he's playing this st- kind of stuff and lyle says well that's not what you played on the record and Stuart's like i don't remember <laughs> what i played on the record and lyle <laughs> says well i really want you to play what's on the record so you can imagine you hire this guy who's capable of all this and go nope i'm gonna handcuff you to the record and i thought oh what a to me what a lost opportunity but then again Lyle is famous for putting on a great show. And so he wants to avoid the risk. Um, and once in a while, you'll run across a band that, that can do both. But it's, it seems it's pretty rare to find somebody that's going to go out there on a limb in front of, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, 200 to 20,000 people. That's, yeah. that's difficult. And... You know, and when you take risks, sometimes you fall on your face. Aaron and I know 
Well, we all know about taking risks, right? You know, like I've played a solo that I'm like, oh my God, I had no groove. <laughs> I lost my key signature. You know, if you don't make big mistakes every so often, you're not really playing, in my opinion. But like Aaron and I had a review for our cover of Englishman in New York from our previous album that uh, someone had said, there's some songs that people should not, a, a group should not cover. And that is one of them. But the other ones are great, so we can skip over that, <laughs> you know. And it was like it's some variation of that. It it was, I disagree wholeheartedly that we fell on our face there. But to his ears, it just wasn't what it needed to be. We fell on our face to that reviewer, and um, and it, that's a risk, you know. When you when you take a song like that and don't do an English accent, and you got two baritone style singers and you know, you, you might, you might not make the cut. <laughs> it's okay yeah. though. It's a, if, if you love it yourself, that's a good thing. You I mean, know, the challenge there is to hear it with fresh ears and that's hard yeah. for a lot of people to do. I mean, I'm guilty of that. If I hear, if I've got a song in my head a certain way and it's like home to me, if somebody takes me away from my home, it might be a perfectly valid version. It's musically fine. It's performed well, but it's not, what my brain is expecting, it's really can be a challenge to set that version that you've got stored in your memory cells aside and let something else in that challenges it. You know, Aaron, when we learn songs, do you study the original very much or do you try to like listen once and then go for it? Because for me, I'll listen and figure it out and then I forget about it, which again, I could fall on my face with these things. But yeah, you know, I mean, I'll go back and, you know, if it's a song we haven't played in a while, I'll go back and listen to the recording and practice to it but when we when you and i get out there and this is something i appreciated about doug you know kind of had the the same mentality and then some um you know they're meant as a as a starting point and and departing from it is something that we we like to do you know that sometimes we'll throw each other a curveball and we'll, we'll improvise and we just read each other and i know that you guys can do that too So, Doug, I mean, it must have been quite a change to be on the road constantly with, with these, you know, wonderful musicians and have, have these big crowds. And then uh, all of a sudden you're in a, a much different environment doing something completely different. I mean, what, what was that transition like and, and uh, why did you feel like it was necessary to, to make that change? Uh, well, I... I didn't want to be somebody that was gone all the time with my kids. I'd seen other people in uh, bands that I was touring with that really seemed like they were missing out on a lot. Uh, and I didn't want to, I just didn't want to do that. You know, you hear all the stories about, well, I didn't know my dad growing up cause he was gone all the time. Didn't, didn't want that to be really what my memory of my children was like. I wanted to be present. We moved back up here to Oxford, Ohio. My, my wife at the time was from Cincinnati. And I had worked at the bike shop up here before when I was when I quit school the fourth time. <laughs> I worked at the bike shop for a little bit. Now, I've been tinkering with bikes since I was a kid. Um, couldn't afford to take my bike to the bike shop, but I was good at reading and uh, figuring out how to go from there. So, you know, you could go to the library and you could read a book about how to fix your bike and apply that. And so I kind of that went I went from there to tinkering with cars a little bit just because basically, I mean, uh, 
if you're struggling as a musician, there's just not a whole lot of cash laying around. So if something happened to the car, I would just figure out how to fix it myself. Um, and that kind of became a love of, I mean, both my kids share that, that passion of, um, you know, Ethan, I don't think, uh, Michael knows this, but, uh, Ethan is now working out at Kettler Motorworks. He got hired out there this summer and is, you know, they're all, all those guys out there like, where did you learn to wrench? I mean, you don't have a background in this. And he's like, well, I've been <laughs> working under cars with my pop since I was like seven. So, um, you know, Aaron, it's interesting you asked the question about, you know, you're either serving a large audience or you're serving a small audience with um, with the work I do uh, at the bike shop. You know, you're helping people one-on-one. Yeah, it's not 20,000 people. But to me, the joy is uh, like serving the song or serving a tune or putting a smile on somebody's face in a different way. Um, seeing mm. somebody that didn't ever think they'd be able to to meet their fitness goals, but you know, you got them the right gear and you got them the right kit and you got them the right attitude and watch them go. That to me is a beautiful thing as well. It's, it's, um, it's different than, you know, a round of applause after a tune, but in a lot of ways it's, it's equally satisfying. Yeah. And I, sometimes I think about audience sizes. I'm kind of unique in a way that I've, I don't really Sometimes I I love an empty room. I don't like an empty, empty room, but when the bar is like a third full because you didn't quite get enough people there, you can really hear yourself well. And that sound is sometimes pristine. I'm like, we're going to go with this, you know, <laughs> compared to like, we packed the place, but no one can hear us, you know? So it's, and when you're in a concert situation, half the time you can't see them anyway. Uh, where I get most nervous is probably in front of my peers, you know, probably going back to master classes in my music degree you know i was like working up this thing and i wish i could go back there now and do it and just say okay i know i can do this you know those moments where you succeeded the other times when you fell on your face i think you know that's i love the idea that you know that it's helping people it's putting a smile on their face i mean that that is what music music needs to help people feel something yeah maybe it's a thing they need to need to feel and hear at that moment Uh, maybe it's a thing they go uh, next song, but that next song is a thing they need to hear, and you always hope that the music that we as musicians create becomes that thing, that soundtrack to their life, because they're probably taking a jog at a park with earbuds in, um, and we we might be their soundtrack for that moment, that pristine little time. Right. When time stands still, we, we might be that moment, you know? Um, this song, I think, is one of those that can be that moment, quite honestly. Um, it does that to me. And I played on the thing. So, you know, <laughs> I'm always struck by how many different people take different meanings from the same song. They'll say this means X to me or Y to me. And I thought I'd never even thought about it like that. And, um, you know, your crowd size thing, uh, you know, we would often play like, a, say, a two o'clock and a seven o'clock show at a big fair. And you've got this enormous crowd and you play the show and, you know, it's it's OK. And then you load out and throw everything under the bus and drive an hour and a half and uh, to some bar on the maybe the outskirts of a town. And you would set up the show in about 20 minutes. You know, you go in there and I mean, the place is open and, you know, there's thumping music going on and there's a stage and 
here you go. We, we, could, we got it down to where we could pretty much have everything set up, ready to rock, spread some monitors around, and be ready to roll in 20 minutes. Um, and that's what I think we had seven-piece band at that point. And yet you just hit the ground with that. And the energy is so much different. It's the same tunes you were playing three hours ago, but the everything is different. Um, and even though you're kind of playing the same notes and the same songs and he's singing the same words, um, just changing, changing the environment, changing the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the space that has been created for that turns it turns it just changes the energy entirely and you know michael you and i have played the same songs for different people and had it be completely different experiences both for the player and the listener yeah which to me is fascinating yeah well and one of the things we did recently was we had uh ethan hamilton doug's son on drums and then doug and i were leading the band and so we had a kind of I, I call it a power trio just because it felt really good but we played uh, the seis de mayo the 6th of may um and did a lot of stuff in spanish english and i went way off book with the set list um and uh i think of family and music because i grew up with family and music aaron you your your daughter is is learning piano and singing in musicals and um just listening to music she greets me by singing my songs. I love it. You know, like she knows all <laughs> my lyrics awesome. in the right key. So like I, all, all of the above, I think, uh, and I recently did something with Josh Heisel with my old duo lost in Holland and Holland played baritone with us, uh, on a new song that we recorded. So it's like, it's so crazy that that band was named after, you know, him thinking of his son, uh, while he was not in town, uh, at war essentially uh with uh the iraq war and everything but he was thinking of his son holland and that was his band name and so yeah we're not lost in holland but he was lost and thought about holland and having holland on stage was just you could feel that energy and um that that sound and that it makes it special right something a little different um so uh this song kind of being about family uh really brings it around and i always feel like you all are family to me because, you know, musicians are an interesting set of uh, breed of people. Essentially, we, we kind of uh, we make friends with the people we work with. And the way we play is to collaborate on projects that happen to be work. And uh, but it's fun, but it's also work, you know, <laughs> which makes everyone else in the world not understand us in any sense of the way of the word of like, well, you're going to work or well, you're going to play. What is it? Well, it's you know, I don't know how to explain it. So. Um, this collaboration has been wonderful and, uh, Aaron, thank you for letting me bring Doug on board and trusting me with this. And Doug, thank you for trusting me with sending you stuff that I'm like, don't worry, you'll be fine. You know, and you just like fit exactly what it needs to be. Well, the trust triad is kind of like, you know, Aaron, I need to feel like Aaron trusts me and isn't going to sit there and go like, oh my God, Michael, where did you find this guy? You know, because I mean, all of us, I think, I don't care how high you go up the ladder, so to speak. But I mean, I know guys that have been playing for 60 years and they still have imposter syndrome. They still think they're sitting in somebody else's chair. And um, that's that's a hard one to shake uh, for, yeah. me, for anybody. So I appreciate the uh, the trust and jumping off into the, 
the uh, I don't know the the well from which great music emanates. <laughs> You're amazing. You know, I, when when uh, I, I was it my idea to to, to bring Doug in. I think it was because we had done that show and you're like, well, right. I want a quartet. Can we do a quartet? And I think either you brought it up or we both thought at the same time. Cause yeah. um, you know, if Doug's available, he's the one you know <laughs> to get. So it's like, there's no other, there's not another option to me as the first call. Um, there's a lot of great players we all work with, but uh, you, you just want someone who can, you know, feel that song and, and make it happen. So, so Doug, yeah, you, you, you made the cut. You made the cut. Always honored. A small folk time outfit uh, that we we're not sure if ten or twenty five people know about us, but those twenty five or ten people uh, do like our music and they appreciate your work as a result. Thank you so much for being a part of the album and uh, letting us dig a little deeper into your background because I think people should know who you are and why the song sounds so good. Ah, well, thank you, and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to play together. Me too. Till next time. Thank you, Doug. Once again, we've we've uh, expended a perfectly normal hour with some wild conversation. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Yes. Uh, we're going to play the song for you. Here is Let's Play in the Snow in its entirety. Let's lay in the snow there's no place to go with that stuff on the ground i'll lace up your boots put on your hat let's go stomp around this beauty can't last you won't always be small snow turns to rain and the moment is gone I'm bundled up too, ready to go, let's play in the snow. Let's make a snowman, let's roll some snow, that's what you said. You're down on your knees, while I stand and freeze, cause it hurts when I bend. You stand up and throw a snowball at my head I duck and I throw out a muscle instead My pants are all soaked But the world is aglow Let's play in the snow And my socks are bunched up in my giant snow boots And my face is all red And my earmuffs askew my glasses are fogged and my hair's out of place But it all disappears with that smile on your face
there's your snowman Three snowballs stacked with a pipe in its mouth A black Abe Lincoln hat From the garage You look so proud I ask for a hand to get up off the ground You help pull me up And then I knock you down We laugh, we seize the day But I'm ready to go Cause we just played in the snow Well, that was refreshing. <sighs> yes. I feel a little chilly. I need a hot shower to warm up. Some hot. Would you like some hot chocolate? Oh, yeah. Let's do that next. Let's yeah. have some hot chocolate. It's, I'm looking outside. It's, uh, it's May, but, uh, but it feels like winter. And, you know, have a hot chocolate on us. You That's have right. to make it, but just know that we gave you the energy to get up and make one. And if you have some Mexican chocolate, cut a little square. So good. Melt it in some either nut milk or actual milk. And it's, it's perfect. That's how my grandfather did it. Put a stick of cinnamon in there while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. That is the cup of hot chocolate that I grew up with. It's a little different than Swiss Miss, but it's pretty good. And an authentic uh, recipe from the Ronstadt family. Yeah, there you go. So don't forget the cinnamon stick. It's all about that. Uh, next song is going to be a really moving song that I think will break your heart multiple times and continue to do so, but I think it's a really important yeah. message about treating your fellow human better and also remembering to apologize for that. So it's for the song Sorry. Sorry, Alan. Yeah. Next on the Nathans and Ron cast. Michael, as we uh, end this episode, do you have any words of wisdom? A word of wisdom? Darren do. Daring do? Daring do. I think that that's uh, is that a, 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 a hyphenated word? If it is, I'm just going to go with it. I mean, all right. Well, I've, I've, <laughs> I'm going to have the daring do to use daring do as a single word. All right. Well, then I will counter with another compound word or uh, a hyphenated word, and that word, my friend, is swizzle stick. Hey, that's pretty good. I like that. I like. Enjoy your hot chocolate, everyone. You're welcome. Thank you. Peace. A far seeing crooms itself to rest.